I don't see our scripture reader here today, so what I'm going to do is invite those who are second grade and younger to make their way down to Children's Church. Second grade and younger can head on down, and you'll hear the scripture during the sermon. That's, that's all part of it. So, Second grade and younger, head on down to Children's Church, as well as those who are 53 and act like they're second grade and younger. And if you're third to seventh grade and you're still with us, we invite you to find a three-ring binder in the back. That wooden table underneath the clock has a treasure seeker binder, and it may have your name on it, or there may be an extra copy there for you, but we'd love for you to, to have that in front of you to take some notes. Can you believe he's a doctor? love him. Let's pray. Father, we do love your church. You are drawing us together in this place to become a a white, hot, worshiping people who celebrate Jesus and the great work that he's done through his cross and resurrection. It's pretty simple. Lord Jesus, we're about you, and we want to know you better, and we want to take a step deeper into our union with you this morning. And we believe that essentially happens through the ministry of the Word of God in our lives. So would you come? Help us, Lord, to to open our Bibles and to see what's really there. And, Lord, would you grant the gift of illumination? Would you, uh, Holy Spirit, um, give us clarity about the meaning of the passage in front of us and its profound implications for our lives together as a church and in this community? In Jesus' great name we ask it. Amen. Last week, it was our privilege to walk through three verses of Holy Scripture that really contain the message of Jesus Christ in short order. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. And what emerged so clearly from those verses last week was the role of works in the presentation of the gospel message itself. Do you understand and share the gospel this way? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not from works, for good works. That's the way that Paul understands it. Not a result of works, Ephesians 2.9, for good works, Ephesians 2.9. To ten, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I hope you believe and live and preach the apostolic gospel, the gospel of the Apostle Paul. So faith is the root, but good works are the fruit. God's grace transfers us to safety and then it transforms us into saints. And another way you could say it is that as a church, we want to talk the talk of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But we also, as a church, want to walk the walk of Ephesians 2.10. Amen? That being said, 
This morning, we want to take our next step into our study and application of the doctrine of union with Christ. And to do that, I'll invite you to find a Bible and open up to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, if you haven't. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and the text begins in verse 11. Uh, If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, you could follow along. The text begins on page 976 and goes on to 977. Pages 976 and 977 in those red Bibles. We want to take our next step into our understanding of Paul's letter to Ephesus, and that means our next step in the understanding of the doctrine of union with Christ, and here is that next step. By definition... Union with Christ means union with other Christians. By definition, union with Christ means union with other Christians. So what we learn today in Ephesians chapter 2 is really something toward which Paul has just been pressing all along. One thing you could say is that Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22, today's sermon text, it's just the horizontal application of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, which has been the text of the last two Sundays. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul demonstrates that the gospel reconciles each one of us to God. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, he's going to show us how the gospel exists to reconcile us to each other. And given our tendency as Christians living in a 21st century Western culture that is tailored toward privacy and space and independence and a life that revolves around the sovereign self, you can see how this aspect of union with Christ might just step on a few American toes. And indeed, it does. I mean, if you've ever had the thought about any Christian fellowship, you know, this church would be great if it weren't for the people. (laughs) Then I hope you listen especially carefully this morning. That's the greener grass fallacy. And if you've never hit that one, I invite you to hit the wall today on that. Um, If you've ever had the thought, you know, I like these people, okay, I'm just not so sure about the Jesus that they worship, or that book they're so serious about, or the things they believe, but I like these people, all right. I hope you'll listen carefully, too. That's That's the headless body fallacy. It's the decapitated Christ fallacy. Seeking Christ's body without Christ's headship. We'll talk about that. Or if you ever had the thought, I love Jesus. I hunger for scripture. I just have absolutely no use for the church. And I hope you'll listen too. That's the perpetual bridegroom fallacy. Treating Jesus as if he weren't engaged. Not true. He's spoken for. Better yet, she's spoken for, and Christ is pursuing her. And you can't have the bridegroom without the bride. So by the end of today's sermon, my desire is that each one of these positions will be shown for what they are. They're they're absurd, and they're impossible to live out if you are in union with Jesus. So let's be crystal clear today. By definition, union with Jesus Christ means union with other Christians. So let's begin this morning where Paul begins. Not with union with Christ, but with estrangement from him. First point today. We must never forget that to be separated from Christ is to be alienated from his people. 
We must never forget that to be separated from Christ is to be alienated from his people. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Weeks ago, when we began our study of Ephesians, one of the things that we noted was uh, the broad tone in which this letter is written. And what I mean by that is that unlike most of Paul's epistles that were written to local churches, um, this one doesn't have much of a personal touch to it, which is really surprising given how well he knew these people. He spent three years in the city of Ephesus sharing the gospel, planting the church, training elders to the point where you read in Acts 20, there are tears sobbing as he's saying goodbye to this church. He spent three years with these folks, and yet over six chapters, Paul doesn't name one person, one place, not one matter of doctrinal or ethical dispute among them, which, which is a slight overstatement because he does name one brother. There's one name, and it's Tychicus, chapter 6, verse 21. Tychicus is going to pass along some news of how Paul's doing to the church in Ephesus, but that's the only context clue we get here about what's happening in Ephesus. So unlike his letters to Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi, which are loaded with place names and people and relationships and concern and heresy and all this stuff that he's concerned about, there is no explicit local detail. There is, however, there's one application. There's one facet that we need to rivet ourselves to here, and that's the facet of the original audience that we encounter, and we encountered it in verse 11. And it makes a big impact on how we understand and apply this letter in our own lives. And here's, here's that facet, here's the detail, that Paul was writing to Gentiles. Paul wrote a letter with non-Jewish believers in mind. Now remember that Paul was a Jewish man. He was a Jew that had come to profess Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the Christ. He's the the king of Israel. And this same Jesus said of Paul in Acts 9, 15, he, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. So here's Paul doing that carrying the name of Jesus before these Gentile people. Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20 contain that three-year history that I spoke of of Paul's work in Ephesus. But here in Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, what the drum that Paul is beating here is the fact that how remarkable it is that these folks embrace the Messiah at all. That's what he's driving at. At one time, these people that he writes to were blasphemers and irreverent and wicked men and women. They worshipped false gods, they lived profane lives, and they were driven by worldly pursuits. The Ephesians were part of what he calls the uncircumcision. You see that phrase in verse 11. It was a scornful term 
used of Jews about non-Jews because the Jews were the circumcision. They were the covenant people and the men bore that mark of covenant membership on their bodies. And yet isn't Paul clear to say that even that sign of circumcision can be taken in vain? Right? That's, that's what's underneath this here. He says it's a circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That's verse 11. But there is a circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, made of the spirit, Romans 2.29. Circumcision made without hands, Colossians 2.11. And Paul's point is that the one that counts is the inward heart variety. So much so that Paul warns Gentile Christians of Jews who would seek to mandate physical circumcision among among the Gentiles. He calls them the circumcision in Ephesians 2.11. He calls them dogs in Philippians 3, 2 and 3. Speaking to the Gentiles in Philippi, Paul says, look out for the dogs, for those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, while Paul, on the one hand, is concerned that congregations would so twist the gospel so as to mandate circumcision among Gentile believers, Paul's equally clear that this was a controversy that just wasn't even on the radar for the Gentiles just a few years back, not long ago. They weren't active participants in this kind of discussion at all. Remember, he says, verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, these people may find themselves embroiled in uh, doctrinal disputes. They might find themselves coming into collision with the world and its values. They may find themselves confronting ethical dilemmas as Gentile Christians that they just never even thought of before, that they were never on their radar prior to the arrival of the gospel in their city. So be it. Um, They may have to try to figure out how to fit into a a history of millennia-old worship, Jewish worship, pockets of which resent their presence at the table. Well, that's the cost of doing business with a global Christ. Remember, Paul says, who you were. You weren't better off without Christ. One of my favorite preachers from yesteryear is a pastor named Charles Simeon. And Simeon writes this. There is scarcely anything which has a greater tendency to impress on our minds with exalted view of the grace of God than to consider the guilt and misery of an unconverted state. Remember what ye were, that ye may be thankful for what ye are. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, if you see the context for what's going on in verses 11 and 12... There are a couple of broad strokes applications, I think, for our own lives. And it's summed up in this phrase. Never forget that to be separated from Christ is to be alienated from his people. So the first sort of person I'd like to address by way of application this morning would be someone who's present with us who who doesn't have a, a saving faith in Christ. 
And the first thing that needs to be said is that we are so glad that you're here. You're in the right place. We love people in this church. I mean, whether your profession in faith, of faith in Christ is, is credible or not, or the real deal or not, just know you are welcome in this place. We are grateful for your presence. And at the same time, it's pastoral mal, malpractice to confuse our affection for you for your affection for Jesus. We shouldn't substitute one for the other or assume that because one is true, the other is true. If you aren't trusting in Christ and treasuring him and banking all of your hope on him and living for him, you are separated from him. Even as you move among his people. Even as you sit here side by side among God's people. Salvation is not by spiritual diffusion or relational osmosis. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm I'm calling you to put your faith in him in this moment. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and your treasure and come and follow him with us. That's the way to become a part of us. And for believers among us, those of you with a genuine profession of Christ and and sincere possession of faith in Christ, you need to be reminded that when someone is without Christ, they are without hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12 is not popular today, but it is positively true. To be without Christ is to be without hope without God. It's impossible to take that reality too seriously. It amazes me that we watch TV at all at the end of the day. While we spend time with our unsaved neighbors. Your family members, your coworkers, your classmates who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. 1 John 2.23 is quite clear. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Jesus himself says, as many of you know, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So God's Son came all the way from heaven in order to run a rescue mission for lost people. Will we cross the street to talk to them? Will we walk across the room for them? They are separated from Christ. Will we not seek to connect them with him? They are alienated from his people. Won't you invite them in? Apart from Christ, they have no hope. They are without God in the world. And so this is a call to prayer and care and share with people on your list of five. Brothers and sisters of Mount Evangelical Free Church, we must never forget that to be separated from Christ is to be alienated from his people to be without hope, and to be without God in the world. Second point. Though the experience of union with Christ is deeply personal, it is anything but private. Though the experience of union with Christ is deeply personal, 
It is anything but private. And I worded the second point this way, of course, because there is a sense in which union with Christ is profoundly personal. We have to agree. It's intensely subjective. I mean, think about how Paul talks about his own union with Jesus in Galatians 2.20. Listen to this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, Paul understood the atonement to be intensely personal. He died for me. That's true. Our union with Christ is individual, but it's not isolating. In Christ, we are distinct from one another, but we're not distant from one another. We are unique in Christ, but we're not unattached to each other in Christ. And so the rest of our passage today paints a vivid portrait of this reality. Listen to Paul's words. They are are pulsing and they are alive with the horizontal application of the vertical proclamation of the gospel. So union with Christ means union with his people. Ephesians 2, 13 to the end of the chapter. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit To the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. There's a lot of things we could do in this passage, but in the time that remains, allow me just to draw our attention to three striking images of our union with Jesus Christ. Because of your vertical union with Jesus Christ, the horizontal union that you have with brothers and sisters here. And as we look at each of these, I want us to show us how these remedy the three fallacies that we saw on the front end of the sermon. So the first image is under point two. To be in Christ is to be part of a living body. To be in Christ is to be part of a living body. So verse 16. It says that Christ's work in the gospel is that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When he's thinking about us both, he's thinking about me, Jew, you Gentiles. That's, that's the dynamic that's going on here, for sure. He's undoubtedly referring to the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And the same gospel that reconciles a Jew and a Gentile in the first century reconciles Gentiles and Gentiles in the 21st century. 
In other words, Jesus came for all people. And that, I would assume, accounts for the vast majority of us here today, us Gentiles. And the body that Paul speaks of in verse 16, it's tempting to think of it as Christ's physical flesh because he mentions the cross there, but it's not the cross. It is his spiritual body, the people in the body of believers, his church. This is a favorite image of Paul's throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we read that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Or in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul's calling the church to unity, and he does so on the basis that there is one body. Later on, chapter 4, verses 12 and 16, Paul tells us that pastors and churches, uh, pastors and teachers, are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, of which he is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when it is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I mean, the, the image here is spectacular as you think about our unity with one another. And the point is simply this. If you're united to Jesus, you're a part of his body. You, you can't have a part in his body without him being your head. And you can't have Christ as your head without his body, the church. And test yourself with one simple application. When others in this church suffer, do you suffer with them? Does their pain impact yours? If not, why not? Even the smallest sufferings matter in the body of Christ because the church is one body. I got three days of running in last week, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and then I began to have shin splints or something, some excuse in my, my right leg. And I'm done. I'm done for the rest of the week. Why? Because my whole body is favoring the small part of my leg. It matters. I'm shut down for the rest of the week because part of my body is in trouble. Paul talks this way about the organic nature of the church in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? Or in Romans 12, 15 to 16, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep and be in harmony with one another. The real test that you love the church is that when you are weeping, you can rejoice with those who are rejoicing and vice versa because we're one body. And as we said, it's not just we're affected by each other's sufferings, but our sins, our sins in particular. There are no small sins, not in the body of Christ. They may be personal, but they're not private. In 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul once compared certain sins of speech to gangrene in the church. Why? Because the church is a body. Sin is corrosive and it's wasting and it's harmful to the body. That's what sin is like when we are living one body in Christ. So to be in Christ is to be a part of a living body. Don't commit the, the headless body fallacy. Secondly, to be in Christ is to be part of a loving family. 
To be in Christ is to be a part of a loving family. In verse 19, Paul uses two relational images to describe the church. It's hard to know which one to to use. The first is that when we are in Christ, we're no longer strangers and aliens. You see that in verse 19? But rather fellow citizens. It's, It's a kingdom image. It's a commonwealth image. And it's really interesting. I think he's pressing really hard on the idea of the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, because Rome said that they were the peace of the known world. Well, Paul mentions the word peace four times in relationship to Jesus here. He is our peace. He is our peace. As if to say, not Caesar, not Rome, or not the White House, maybe in our case. But it's not the kingdom image that I wanted to drive at here. It's the second relational portrait, and it's far more intimate. It's that of a family. I love this. The church that I came from, Village Church of Lincolnshire, um, has begun to take on an image of uh, the church as a home. And Lee, who is my mentor, uh, has said they're, they're toying around with the idea of putting rocking chairs in the foyer as people walk in. Why? Because the church is a home. Verse 19 says that when we are in Christ, we are members of the household of God. So the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, And to align oneself with Christ is to align oneself with her. We can't truly say we love Jesus unless we love who Jesus loves. We can't follow Jesus and live for him if we're unwilling to live for the ones he died to save. Jesus loves and gave his life for his church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So don't commit the perpetual bridegroom fallacy. Do you treat Jesus like he's a bachelor? Do you treat Jesus like a perpetual bridegroom? Here's another image. Do you live your Christian life as if you are an only child? No offense to those in the room who are only children. I'm the youngest of five, maybe. I can get away with this, but I'm working from a caricature here. Do you find it difficult to share, to wait your turn? Are you demanding? Are you immature? Are you self-centered? Are you disconnected from your brothers and sisters? If so, I've, I've got good news. We have a family for you. If you're born again, God's great design is to welcome you into a family by adoption. And it's a great big family with lots of chances to get involved, to pitch in as it relates to serving in the home and fellowship and giving and mission. And like a family, this church will be here for you as a safe harbor and as a defense, a common bond provided for you to link arms with others in in mutual accountability and forward mission in our desire to be and make disciples of Jesus. To be in Christ is to be part of a loving family. Third and final image, to be in Christ is to be a part of a holy temple. To be in Christ is to be a part of a holy temple. So the last image of union with Christ in Ephesians 2 is that of a a building. Verse 20, it's a building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is certainly true personally and individually of each and every believer in our midst. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that if you are in Christ, your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that you have within you. You are not your own. You were, you were bought with a price to so glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the experience of union with Christ, it's deeply personal on this score. And at the same time, it's just anything but private. Each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but Ephesians 2.22 tells of an even greater vision, a greater temple. In him, you also, little temples, being built together into a dwelling place, that's the temple, for God by the Spirit. It's true of the global church of Christ, but it's also true of the local church of Christ. I think this answers the greener grass fallacy, doesn't it? If you've ever thought this church would be great if it weren't for the people, you're living in defiance of verses 20 through 22. That in every church that proclaims the gospel, and there are many wonderful such churches in the Twin Cities and in this city, every church that proclaims the gospel, Jesus is at work building them into a holy temple. And so... I invite you, if you are living in defiance of verses 20 to 22, to become a person rich and skilled and wise at pointing out evidences of grace, of the Spirit at work in this church, God's grace among us. To be in Christ is to be part of a holy temple. Don't commit the greener grass fallacy. As I learned long ago, Seth Brickley taught me, the grass isn't greener anywhere else. It's just greener with Jesus. So where Jesus is, the grass is green. And he's here. Well, by definition, union with Jesus Christ means union with other Christians. We must never forget that to be separated from Christ is to be alienated from his people. And though the experience of union with Christ is deeply personal, it's anything but private. To be in Christ is to be part of a living body, a loving family, and a holy temple. Next week... Our children take over Sunday morning. And you're not going to want to miss it. The kids present Camp Walla Bala, a kids musical about God's promises. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the profound investment that you have made in us through the Lord Jesus not simply to reconcile us to you as individuals, though you offer that and, and have and continue to draw people to our midst into reconciliation with you. But Lord, that, that vertical claim that you have on us has very deep and searching consequences and application for us here horizontally in the church. So Father, in a great desire of our union with Christ, to be rich and real, I pray, Father, that you would place in our hearts a profound gratitude for being a part of a local church. Father, may we be a church that champions and cheers on other local churches in this city. 
not threatened, just greatly thrilled for the building of your church in the West Tonka area, the Twin Cities, and, and around the world. But Lord, as we are a part of this fellowship, help us to give it everything we've got to lift up Jesus. And I pray that you would take this message and drive it home, Holy Spirit, in ways that are appropriate and really only you can do. May the ripple effects of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 be ongoing and powerful in the days ahead. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.